Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. Welcome to this percolated media Halloween special. As the three men in a retrospective podcast review all of the movies in the Exorcist saga. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Join Garrett. I haven't had a bath for three days. And Matt. Why me? As they bring back horror film scholar Mick Duffy. I wouldn't be concerned about reason, Major. He's a scholar. And they review each film, one exorcism at a time, all leading up to a review of the brand new David Gordon Green directed entry to be released this Halloween season. Does the original Exorcist deserve its title of being the scariest movie of all time? I cannot tell you it's forbidden. How will Matt and Mick react to their first time viewings of The Exorcist 2? And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. And why are there two versions of the fourth sequel? He will seek to poison your mind. The answer to all these questions and more... Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Pazuzu, prince of the evil spirits of the air, take me to Kokumo. The Exorcist 3, released August 17, 1990. Budget on this was $11 million. Box office, $44 million. And this is directed by William Peter Blatty. You know, Mick, I think it's safe to say there has not been a more varied response to movies 1 and 2. Meaning, the movie we reviewed two weeks ago is one of the most beloved, one of the still called to this day the scariest movie of all time by lots of people. Last week's movie... Not so much. Is it safe to say? No. I mean, there, there's never been really that big ver- variety, has there? No, I, it's hard to think of a, uh, a a film and a sequel having such a disparity. Big time. So this is such an interesting movie because this is a movie that was not going to be called Exorcist Three, right, Mick? Right. It was going to be called Legion after the source novel that Blatty based it on, because it's based on a literary sequel that Blatty wrote. So his, his book Legion is sort of a sequel to The Exorcist, but it's not really the same kind of story. Yeah, and this is not the same kind of movie until we get two-thirds into this thing. This is one of those movies that, when this was out in video stores, I went to the video store to grab The Exorcist. Behind it was The Exorcist 3. I grabbed The Exorcist 3, and I thought I was going to watch the first movie. I took it home, 
and then I look at the box. It's like, oh God, it says The Exorcist 3. <laughs> I did not mean to watch this. This is before I had watched the first movie. But you know what? The video store was quite a drive, and my dad was not wanting to go back. So I was like, okay, I'll just sit down and watch this. I guess I'm stuck with it. And I had quite a response to this one. Mick, do you remember the first time you watched this one? Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. I saw it on video, I guess sometime around 1990 or possibly 1991. And um, yeah, I remember being very impressed with it. Yeah, that was not the response to a lot of of people, including me. I was watching it and as a teenager, I watched this and I was just like, I want something to happen. Give me some action. But this time the devil was coming out of the little girl. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this police procedure bullshit. And, of course, then the end happens. Matt, did you know about this movie's history before you'd actually watched it? No, I didn't, because I waited a very long time. I saw Exorcist 3 before I'd seen Exorcist 2, based on our previous recordings, because I always saw The Exorcist as a parallel to Jaws. It's holistic. It works on its own. Why would I watch sequels? Especially with the reputation that Exorcist 2 had. I gave this one a shot because of... George C. Scott, who I've seen almost everything he's ever done, and I knew that it had a novel that it was based on, so I could see it more as a creative, a positive creative source of inspiration as opposed to blaming it solely on the studio for wanting another movie a la Spielberg and The Lost World. We kind of do have a Lost World scenario going on here, because... As Nick said, Laddie made this novel, Legion, and he was wanting to make it into a movie. But this is one of those cases that people talk about in the 90s and when people make films where the studio literally took this thing over. They're the ones who wanted to call it Exorcist 3. And Blatty was not wanting to call it Exorcist 3 because Blatty wanted to distance himself from Exorcist 2. He was like, look, that was embarrassing. I don't want to even associate this movie with that movie but the studio was insistent. Mick, how much do you know about this? Yeah, I know that the, uh, uh, originally this began as, when he had the story concept, it was originally envisaged as it was going to be a straight film sequel to The Exorcist that was in development at Warner Brothers, and Friedkin was going to come back and direct. And this was the early 80s, mm-hmm. and Friedkin sort of had cool feet about the project, I've heard it's because this story involves a serial killer and his film Cruising had just done very, very badly and it involves some sort of thematic overlap there and that's why he, Friedkin, sort of ultimately bailed and then Blatty, tired of the thing being in development hell, just wrote it as a novel. I mean, I remember I remember the novel coming out. I remember seeing the novel in... My town didn't have a bookshop. One of the shops in my town sometimes had books in it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, I remember seeing this on the shelf and thinking it looked very grown up and scary. Did you ever read it? Um, I, I read it as an adult, yes. Okay. I guess we'll get into, as we get into the movie, how different it is from what the actual movie is. Does it literally follow it with the exception of the exorcism, which we'll talk about? That was not in the novel, obviously. Does it pretty much follow it? Yes, and also sort of no. There are a couple of things in the novel that don't make it into the film, in, including, like, there's a... Well, there's a there's an exhumation scene that isn't in the film. Okay. And there's a bit more stuff about weirdness happening in the hospital. It's it's weird. There's lots of bits that are uh, very much direct translations of chapters from the novel, but the novel's a very different experience, I think. Now, when Blatty was shopping this around, and then he got Morgan Creek, not Warner Brothers, to go ahead and distribute it, he offered it to an interesting director, like you yeah, mentioned. John Car- yeah. 
Yeah, like you mentioned, Mick, he did offer it to William Friedkin, who, and like you said, was like, no, thanks, but no thanks. He completely distanced himself from this particular IP. But Blatty offered it to John Carpenter, and Carpenter was thinking about taking it on, and then he also got cold feet because with the way Blatty was with him, Carpenter was like, you know what, you go ahead, just direct it yourself because you obviously are not going to let me do my thing. Matt, how different would a John Carpenter Exorcist movie be? <laughs> Considerably, but look, 90s Carpenter, very different than the previous decades. So in that respect, I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. And it's an instance where I always appreciate people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, going from not just writing to directing. You know, this is exclusively his movie until the studio put in all the demands. And I'm sure he was as visibly frustrated and angry as George C. Scott is throughout this movie. I'm sure that I'm sure that was him. The entire movie, absolutely. Well, you say that about Carpenter, and yeah, his 90s work is not grand, but the three of us reviewed, and it's, it will see the light of day eventually, the three of us reviewed They Live. And this was two years yeah. after They Live. So I think the trajectory would have kept on going because instead of taking Memoirs of Invisible Man the next year, he would have done this. And I, I, I think we could have still had a little bit more good Carpenter, at least for a little while longer. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Carpenter didn't do this, but did direct the Chevy Chase yes. Invisible Man movie. Yeah. And Friedkin didn't do this, but did direct the very bad Chevy Chase arms-dealing comedy uh, Deal of the Century. So, you know, I, I think there's a lesson there. Mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and John Carpenter also, that was a paycheck movie, because wasn't Ivan Reitman supposed to do Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, yes. And Chevy Chase, big surprise, was a notorious prick. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't get along. Um, I think it's literally the only John Carpenter theatrical film that doesn't say that doesn't have the possessive John yeah, Carpenter's, Carpenter's yeah in, in the title yeah it's really his only theatrical work for hire gig you know and we talk about Freakin Freakin wasn't doing too much better because on that same trip to the video store I had rented this and I also rented a horror movie that Freakin himself had done it was touted as like the first horror movie that he had done since The Exorcist it was a movie called The Guardian which I don't know oh if you guys God. have seen this thing. Oh, that, that movie's horrendous. And it's funny, that movie was originally Sam Raimi was going to uh-huh. direct that. And he said, fuck that, because he read the script. I think that movie would have worked with Sam Raimi because that idea is so preposterous that I'm sure it would have been incredibly campy. But Freakin played it really straight, and I think it, it suffered because of it. Yep. I, I remember around the time it came out, reading an interview with Freakin. Really? And he was talking, yes, he was talking about the uh, preview process for it, and that one of the cards somebody had written at a test screening of The Guardian was, I expected better from Blatty, which I, I, I just love. Those two uh, were sniping at each other until Blatty's death, and now that Freakin has also unfortunately passed, I'm sure they are still sniping at each other to this day, somewhere, somehow. <laughs> All right, unless anybody has anything else to add... What do you guys say we dive into The Exorcist 3? Matt, do you have anything to add? Please, if you are a collector of physical media, purchase the Blu-ray that came out. It was Screen Factory, which includes both the theatrical cut and the closest to a director's cut that this movie's ever going to have. 
ton of really cool stuff on it. If you own the first one, you owe it to yourself to, to buy this one, too. You know, I've never seen that cut. I, I heard about it being reassembled. I think it came out, what, 2007, something like that? Um, no, 2016. 2016, yeah. I still have not seen that. Mick, have you seen that one? No, I was watching some of the deleted scenes, but I've not watched the whole thing in its its entirety. But it's um it's also on the uh, the UK Blu-ray release from Arrow has both versions, and um, so does the copy I have, which is from a French label. All right. So yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think every time someone sells this, now they bundle both versions in. Like I, I've, I've never seen the. I have to call it like the work print cut. That's exactly what I'd call it. Blatty started making noise that there was another cut, and when Blatty died. I believe it was his wife who said, yeah, there is that footage, and we're trying to see if maybe we could put it together. And like Matt said, it came out about 2016 was when it finally came out. And I still have not seen that cut. Mick, maybe you can shed some light as we go through these scenes when where stuff is different where it's not. Yeah, I'll give that a go. Because I mostly watch, I've watched the opening and the different ending. Like, I've not sat and watched the whole sort of director's cut in its entirety in sequence. But yeah, that's I'm familiar with what's being changed. I do remember that there was a big thing about Blatty just kind of taking ownership. And Matt, you kind of touched on this earlier, where if you're going to own up to it, do it yourself. And Blatty has said he views those three films, Exorcist, Ninth Configuration, and Exorcist 3, as a sort of trilogy about faith. Mm. Yeah, it's his apocalypse trilogy, basically. So the guy who originally played Kinderman was dead. Yes. So they couldn't perform an exorcism to bring him back. No, they so. cannot. They cannot bring no. him back. And um, but um, you know, there's another link between uh, Lee J. Cobb, his first Kinderman, mm-hmm. and George C. Scott. Cobb was juror number three in the original film of Twelve Angry Men. Oh, and George C. Scott was in Friedkin's version. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. it's not the first time they've kind of you know assumed each other's rules. Mm-hmm. So we open up with a kayak team taking their boat away from the water and a shot of those oh-so-imposing steps. And one thing Blatty does do in this movie, he really does milk those steps for what it's worth. He does, but it's also his way of saying, yes, this is an Exorcist sequel, but I'm going to get that out of the way immediately. Mm-hmm. Right down to the music cue, the bells. He's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because you. it would be demanded, and I'm going to get it out of the way, though, because I'm really trying to distance myself as much as I can. Do you guys think that this is a movie made out of spite? That the- no, uh, uh, no, no. I, I, no. I think this is this is what Wes Craven should have done with New Nightmare. In that, this is a movie that really it should be The Exorcist two for multiple reasons. Not just because of the heretic. All copies of that should be destroyed like the E.T. video game and buried and never seen again. But I call it The Exorcist 2 because it does what I think the best sequels do in that thematically it touches on everything that the first one does, but from an entirely new perspective. So it feels fresh and and new. And I think there is a conceited attempt to still honor the original movie. Like, I don't think this is one of those things where... Because when you say spite, I think of Zack Snyder. That That's where it's like, I'm not going to use a frame from Joss Williams' Justice League unless I absolutely have to here. Because Blatty was involved so much in the first movie, I do think there is a mutual respect there. And I think this movie actually builds on the first one pretty well without doing anything that 
I accuse bad sequels of doing, whether it's retcons or new additions that make you question some of the logic choices. Here, I, I think this is a true passion project in a good way. Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with that. And I think even just from the very opening here, there's some very, very considered filmmaking craft going on. This is a you know, very I, well-crafted movie. You're absolutely right. It's, you know, sometimes when you get a, uh, a novelist or somebody from another medium mm-hmm. uh, making a feature film, that will be the, the direction isn't usually as confident as this. Yeah. But also... Yeah, Looking at, look at you, Frank Miller. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, Frank Frank Miller. Norman Mailer. Did you ever see Tough Guys Can't Dance? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not sure Norman Mailer really deserves his reputation as a novelist either, but, you know. Um, <laughs> but no, there's an interesting thing here. It's a... Uh, Blatty's direction is very sure and very confident. But also... I guess because he has a background in literature originally, he sometimes thinks about story and storytelling in ways that I think a traditional filmmaker would not. And his his editing choices, with how abrupt a lot of them are, how it goes from scene to scene, that's very equivalent to the last sentence of a chapter immediately segueing into the next chapter. Um, yes. You know, it, it's very much that. And, I mean, we've had... You know, I jokingly said Frank Miller, Garrett, we talked about Stephen King, had that issue. What works in a book doesn't, you know, that style mm-hmm. doesn't translate. Sometimes it's worked. You know, Aliyah Kazan is kind of a a good example. Even uh, Michael Crichton. Oh, yeah. You know, he, yes. he directed Coma, you know, Great Train Robbery. So it, it can be done. Uh, but yeah. you can tell this is a movie that was directed by a writer based on the the conversations and the dialogue and how those scenes hold a lot longer than most of the stuff without dialogue, barring the most famous scene in the movie. We didn't see Kinderman from the first movie, speaking of the first movie, though this time he's played by George C. Scott, because like I mentioned, the actor from the first film died as that particular movie was coming out. Matt, we're going to be reviewing Scott again in the near future when we see him play an Indian assassin in Firestarter. <laughs> Here, he's definitely a suitable replacement for kind of a nothing role from the first movie. But some of his choices, one I'll bring up later, completely baffle me. How do you guys like George C. Scott in this? Well, his eyebrows should get a sub-credit in the starring (laughs) section because those things are putting in a lot of work. What I love about his performance is that he is so... He's both intense... But he's also cynical and just beaten down because he's seen just the most deplorable stuff you can imagine and is kind of desensitized to it at this point until what is revealed actually happens and that causes a spiral. But I I love how he's just a, a jaded detective who goes through life as he has to, not necessarily because he wants to. But he's got great mood swings when, when he needs to be funny or, or quick-witted. It, it actually works. And I think he adds credibility to this movie in a way that Richard Burton failed to do in the previous one. Yeah, I mean, I think he, uh, I think he gives a, a magnificent performance. Uh, I think it's very entertaining, but also, um, I guess, within the context of this narrative, believable. Certainly, it, uh, it, it drives the story along. I think there's some... I think there's some strange plotting in this film, 
But I don't care as long as George C. Scott is doing his full George C. Scotting. You know, <laughs> he is, uh, it's great. It, there, there's something very, very magnetic and fascinating about his work here. And I'd say that about most of his performances, uh, so not Firestarter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. But yes, no, he's he's so great here. The way he's kind of a, a there's the occasional outbursts. Oh God. Where it's becoming too much for him, and he's snapping. Yeah. But then also the bits where he's been extremely witty and or sarcastic, but no one's really receptive to it. <laughs> Apparently, him and Blatty did not get along on the set at all and when you have two explosive personalities like that I can see that happening but they were pretty professional didn't really blow over in front of everybody but they were pretty standoffish with one another so Kinderman grabs a picture of himself and Karis and just mutters Damien before tubular bells rings out and yet another shot of the steps fills the screen and Matt you know you mentioned it you're absolutely right Blatty's is saying I'm getting this out of the way right now so you people who love that first movie came for this third one can be happy right Oh, God, yeah. And it's also manipulative to the advertising. The poster, the damn tagline is, do you dare walk these steps again? Yeah. Like, it, it, the studio was... Given the fact that Exorcist 2 was as panned as it was, I'm surprised they did just call this the real Exorcist 2. Well, with how much with how much course correcting they're, they're trying to do in the marketing. Well, we've talked about it. You know, Singer tried that with Superman Returns. Like, just ignore those other two sequels. This is the real sequel to Superman 2. Like, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. If it wasn't for that second movie, and if this were made, let's just put it this way, if this were made today, they would just exonate that second movie and say, that doesn't matter. This is the real Exorcist 2. Well, and they, 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 they're, they're cool on they're the title. Be, yeah, and they're going to be doing that when this new one comes out. Yeah. yeah. Based on what I've seen for the marketing. We're then getting other shots as some weird sound effects fill the soundtrack and a church door springs open. Man. You know, it is unfortunate that this was the last film that this guy ever directed, because that guy can set a mood. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is a... He can set a mood, and he absolutely knows how to use Catholic iconography. Oh, God, yeah. He knows what to put in the frame as far as establishing mood, but also creating a general sense of uneasiness. Because, you know, the the church is often a, a shelter and a sanctuary... But I love that this movie really tries to break down the barriers that those tangible things can't protect you, even if you're an actual, like, devout believer. And a lot of this reminds me of some of David Lynch's best stuff. He has that those eccentricities with some of the characters and some of the dialogue that Lynch will bring to a lot of his best movies. But he's also really daring with some of the stuff he does, and knowing when to pull back, but also to create those genuine oh-shit moments that catch you by surprise. Mm. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned Lynch, because, well, A, that wasn't my big notes here, especially in terms of the sound sign in this movie, where there's lots of, there are lots of uh, unsettling noises which sound like you know, Satan's aircon has been turned on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, one of the uh, deleted scenes... Then you know, the original prologue is black and white, and it's sort of picking up right after the uh, after Father Carrots takes his tumble down the steps. And certainly, watching that sequence, you know, with it sort of in greeny black and white, and with um, it's it's distressing sort of industrial sounds, it feels like a racer head or the elephant man. It does. We're hearing about dreams of a rose and falling down a long flight of steps. 
We're seeing a dead body being recovered by Kinderman, and more visions of falling down those steps fill the screen. <laughs> Joe says that he's going to see It's a Wonderful Life, as his dinner mate says his favorite movie is The Fly. You know, these are conversations I did not appreciate as a teenager, but watching it now, I mean, Blatty is making an adult horror film, and that's something that, you know, I think that was my mentality in 1990, guys, where I was watching this thinking I was going to get, you know, another Freddy or Jason horror movie, you know, we're going to see teenagers get sliced off, and no, that's not what he's doing, he's making an adult horror film. Yeah, and it, it's great, it, it's great how sardonic he allows some of his characters to be, and how so much, so, so much enmity but also sometimes love is just completely masked by a sort of terrible sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you definitely think that. It was the right movie at the wrong time. This was the onset of the 90s, but we were still thick in the slasher craze, although that was going to start to unravel very shortly after this movie, ironically. But this feels like the movie you would have gotten around the time of, like, David Fincher 7, which, holy shit, David Fincher must love this movie because it reminds me so much of 7. Especially, you know, the, the procedural element, the intermixing of the hospital institution versus, you know, medical. Um, you know, I mean, 7 Deadly Sins, that's straight out of Catholicism. So I think there's a lot that this movie has spawned. And I think if, if it came out, a couple of years later, I do think it would have been received a lot differently, especially with something like Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Taking people by complete surprise, you know. I think that this this is kind of the precursor to that in, in certain ways. You completely stole my thunder, because that was exactly how I was going to wrap this up, is that I think this movie was just two, three years too early, and way ahead of its time. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is a film that everyone would spend the next 25 years ripping off. Mm. They're not saying that they're ripping it off. I mean, you know, uh, you know, obviously Seven owes a lot to this, but so too do I think. Um, well, I think Chris Carter's TV show Millennium. Oh yeah, is very indebted to this. Great call. I would al- I would also say uh, the w- it's a little more playful than this. I would say that Paramount Plus's show Evil. If you've watched any of that, I can tell you straight off that as somebody who worked on a documentary about Millennium, Chris Carter definitely has seen this and loves this movie. We're hearing the Gemini killer has been dead and we're getting glimpses of Kinderman's home life. Father Dyer decides that he wants lemon drops and then hurries home so he can have carp that his mother-in-law has cooked. Again, like all this stuff is just kind of establishing these relationships. Not just that. It, it, the fact that this guy is so hung up on the fact that you know, his mother-in-law is going to be cooking this amazing yes. meal. But just the, the fish's presence, just, he can't, like, not fixate on that. Mm-hmm. Um, tells you everything you need to know about this guy. And apparently this is from the first book, and he he really wanted to, to include this, so, like, this was a huge sticking point for him uh, to include this. These are those, like, like I said, those, those Lynch type of eccentricities with what people talk about, and it, it works. Yeah, I am. Um, well, here's the thing. I think this Blatty's dialogue is so much fun for actors to say that I'm not surprised that this has got just such a murderer's row of sort of, you know, grit talent in it. Mm-hmm. That carp in the bathtub speech is, is wonderful. It is. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to have to say that if you're an actor, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> 
And I think that's what Scott kind of gravitated towards. Again, he was not, you know, he was not a big fan of The Exorcist. In fact, he'd never seen it. So I think this is the kind of stuff where he was like, you know what, I can really, really do some things with that. We're learning in the following scenes that Kinderman really has a pessimistic view of life. Like, this is a guy, and Matt, you touched on this, where, I mean, he has seen so much, and he's just trying to get through, right? Yeah, and he, he also does it while shattering other people's optimism. Yes. Because he's talking to his best friend, who is a devout priest, and tells him, like, you know, things will work out in the end. He's like, oh, yeah? little 12-year-old boy was found, and he goes into horrific detail about mm-hmm. how he died, and you just see all the blood drain out of Dyer's face. Yes. But again, like, these two have a great rapport, when he's telling them, like, you don't want to live forever, and all the... Like, they really feel like old friends, which is a testament to the writing, because these are two very minor characters in the original, all things considered. So the fact that he's able to expand upon it in the way that he does for only the first 30 minutes all things being as they are, is a, is a great selling point for the movie. And I also like the little character detail. Where Kinderman thinks, well, I've got to go see this movie with Dyer today because it's the anniversary of Karis' death, mm-hmm. and Dyer always gets depressed on this day, and he needs he needs my support. Whereas Dyer says the same thing about Kinderman. Uh, I've got to go see Kinderman today because it's, it's the anniversary, and, you know, that guy will need my support. So I, I, love, that. I love that they're actually being mutually supportive of each other, but pretending they're doing the other one a favor. <laughs> that is a nice detail. We're then hearing from Kinderman about a 12-year-old boy, as Matt says, named Thomas Kintry, a black youth who had an ingot driven into both his eyes and had his head cut off. In place of his head was the head from a statue of Christ done up in blackface. Man, look at all this detail. Mick, is this all yeah, like really described in that book? Um, yes, I think so. It's also quite nice that the... Um that the boat whores are involved in this, you know, the crucified yeah. on boat whores, because otherwise, starting your film set in a big college town with kind of a, uh, you know, rowing team on the river mm. would be a bit of a cliche, but I guess it's justified, because, yep, you know, it's, 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 it's down by the river, they're, they're near the boating shed, there's, you know, oars have been involved, it's, it's relevant. Yeah, you know, it definitely it's, it's, is, yeah. Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. Like, starting it off the way it did, the way this movie does, it, it's just, it's different than what I was expecting. Let's put it that way. I mean, that's kind of my review of the entire film. But we're seeing this college the, this college kayaking team getting out of the water, and that's kind of what this is referencing, right? Yeah, yeah, because, because otherwise, without that, that would be a bit of a cliche, like, you know the way every time uh, there's a Hollywood movie and characters are going to London, they'll give you this montage of London with, like, Tower Bridge yeah. and various London landmarks, and they'll put on London Calling by the Clash, and I want to kill myself? Because it's, it's just like, why would you do this to the late Joe Strummer? Why would you do this? Why just, just pick, pick another song, literally any other song, about just don't do this. <laughs> and it's one of these things where it's like, I guess if a lesser film started with 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 those people in the river, I'd be like, no, oh, yeah, right, okay, yeah, I get it, yeah, college fun, yeah, I see what you're doing, but with this, because it's intimately linked to that, I'm, you know, you forgive it, right? I, I more than forgive it. It actually makes it better. It makes it better. We get a creepy confession scene of what sounds like an old woman confessing to a murder, and that she's working on the problem of all this bleeding. 
This is a great setup, and whether Blatney was a capable director or not, the imagery and feeling of dread this movie offers is quite effective for me. It's not just the imagery, it's the sound mixing. Yeah, oh yeah, I was going to bring that up later. Which, yeah. you know, that, and that goes into overdrive mm-hmm. later. But this is great because the movie, the classic rule, I think is one of the textbook examples, what you don't see is often far more terrifying than what you are actually shown. You ne- for a police procedural, you never see a murder. You only see the aftermath, and the bodies are never shown. You just see Kinnaman lift up the sheet, he gives an expression, and that's it. It's both restrained, but it's purposeful restraint. It's, it's, I don't think it's done out of pretense. It, it's done with intent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yes, the, uh, the, he knows what to keep hidden. You know? Yeah. He knows that dating the facts of these murders and letting us ponder them is going to be a lot more terrifying than having, you know, gore mm-hmm. on screen. And the three of us, I mean, we've reviewed a lot of gory films and, you know, it can be used effectively, but Matt, you're right. The less you see, the better it is. Yeah, I mean, just just say it. We've reviewed a lot of trash yes. together. <laughs> yeah. like, we've reviewed a lot of just outright exploitation. Yep. We get Kinderman investigating a murder scene in a church, as Kinderman is told that the boy was injected with a drug used in an electroshock, ther- electroshock therapy, and that he was fully aware he was being killed. Oh, man, what brutal. Oof, that's brutal to think about. Kinderman then goes to Dyer in the hospital and brings him a stuffed penguin, and Dyer says that he swears everything is okay. And this is when Scott's acting goes into camp territory, because as his voice gets louder, a nurse comes to check on them, and Scott just blurts out of nowhere, we're fine! <laughs> one of my favorite scenes, one of the most memorable scenes I remember, I remember from a viewing, my viewing as a kid, where I was just like, oh god, that's funny. I love the built, like, the, the childlike, like, these two act like children when they're with each other, where he's like, oh, my brother had these symptoms, he's like, your brother died in Vietnam when he was 30. <laughs> now, Scott is over the top here, but I don't think it's really distracting. Mick, do you find Scott's acting distracting here? No, it's not over the top. He's been larger than life. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think the best point of comparison here is probably John Wayne, but obviously he's better than John Wayne. Yes. But, you know, he has a large personality, and it works great in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's playing it. Broadly, but in the same way that, like, you know, Michael Douglas plays a big and fatal attraction. He has to be larger than life because the movie is kind of, by its very nature, it's absurd. The movie also doesn't shy away from being goofy, which I think is why also, much like the first movie, modern audiences wouldn't necessarily find it scary. And talk about things that age this movie. And I, I always bring these things up, but it's just it's always funny when I see somebody light up in a hospital room. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. Like, well, it's also weird. Like you know, we talk about this all the time. Seeing people smoke in movies. Yeah, yeah. And he even tells another nurse, "May the Swartz be with you." So we get a fucking spaceballs reference here. It's funny that the Catholic priest says that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a joke written by a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> As Kinderman goes to the elevator, we see that a statue of Jesus is missing a head. So we're really filling the blanks in. You're like, okay, there's something that's coming up here. And again, it's Blatty building that mood. Yeah, I'll tell you, a funny thing happened to me today. I, I was in my garden, and in my front garden we have a little ornament of the Buddha, but its head is missing. The head got damaged and it keeps falling off, and I keep putting it back on. And normally we find this amusing because, you know, Buddha's all about impermanence, yes? Yes. 
<laughs> it's fine that his head comes off, but the day I came out and I saw his head was missing, and I, 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 I actually, I actually felt, oh, that's actually distressing. <laughs> How are you guys feeling about the fact that we're not in a horror film as much as a procedural thriller? And like I mentioned, as a teenager, this stuff bored the hell out of me. As an adult, I am engrossed. No, I actually, I actually found this sort of engrossing as a teenager. Well, you were more mature uh, than I was. <laughs> well, yeah. I think because its choices are too interesting, uh, and also I, I don't know if this is like a, I don't know if this has been being being raised Catholic, but maybe I'm more responsive to a film which is so steeped in Catholicism mm-hmm. that I am I, by definition finding it more interesting than perhaps somebody who wasn't. I'm a sucker for police procedurals, detective stories in general. So this really, it, it touches on subgenres that I am always akin to. So I'm I'm on board with this from the from the opening. Like this is one of those movies that I recognize it's imperfect and there are some you know issues you can certainly talk about. But it's one of those things where I can put atmosphere and just emotional storytelling over just outright execution. I champion this movie a lot as far as telling people you don't have to be explicitly detailed as long as you get you get a sense of your characters and you get a sense of the world that they inhabit. And I think this movie consistently does that. Uh, especially here with the, the missing head tells you that whatever killer or, or evil, it's coming from this, this hospital. Mm-hmm. Like, so you know this is going to, that that detective thing of leaving the breadcrumbs for your audience to follow. Kinderman hears that two people committed these murders. We're then getting some weird dream imagery as dogs are wandering through the hospital, and the scariest image of all fills the screen, that of Fabio. Or uh, Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This was bizarre. And you guys are talking about, you know, we're talking about how the mood is everything, and I, I completely agree with that. But when I see Fabio just there mugging for the camera, I was just like, all right, this is this is kind of taking me out of it. Nick, I mean, you remember the whole Fabio craze back in the 90s. This was weird, wasn't it? No, no. Fabio could have wandered down any street on the side of the Atlantic and... Um, well, he'd have only gotten the attention you'd get for looking like Fabio, not for being Fabio. Because, <laughs> nope, I had no idea who that guy was. Uh, I think well and well until this century, you know, when I encountered <laughs> Americans discussing him. So uh, I, I don't think he had any kind of Q rating here. So what I do like about this uh, Kinderman's sort of afterlife visitation or dream is... That it seems to link to, you know, when we see him earlier in the cinema, like this scene, it's a wonderful, they're going to see It's a Wonderful Life, and there's also a poster up for, is it, uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan? It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And two 1940s films that are kind of about the afterlife and angels, and this whole sequence, I think it's got that, it's got that 40s big band in it, and the guy who looks like Glenn Miller, and it's, so it's the afterlife, but it's, it's sort of a hospital, but it's also sort of like, you know, uh, Grand Central Station. It feels like it's in conversation with those kind of 1940s fantasy comedies about the afterlife. Like Heaven Can Wait. Heaven, I was you just know, thinking it, Heaven Can yeah. Wait. Yeah. No, yeah, I, love, well, I love how this, this is like the ideal depiction 
you know, altruistic heaven in movies where it's bright and everyone's all jovial, but because this guy lives in a world that is just inhabited by evil, that is what breaks him out of it, is that that reminder. And also seeing It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, Clarence might as well show up in this scene. And I think it's 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 almost the movie easing you into a false sense of security, being like, oh, you think this movie's going to be really schmaltzy and have a happy ending? Uh, you're in for something else. Yeah. As is, uh, speaking of sound mixing, if you notice, Samuel L. Jackson is the blind guy. Yeah. yeah. But when he talks, that is not his voice. Yeah, they dubbed him. <laughs> no, and it's a, you know, um, way to diss Radio Rakim, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, and for the record, it's Patrick Ewing, not Kareem. I apologize. Uh... <laughs> And also, at the diner scene, Larry King is there. Yeah. Like, it's 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 really weird, just the, the weird people that just show up in this movie. I mean, it, it's almost like it's a mad, 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 mad world with the amount of just rant spontaneity that's here. You're definitely not going to see another movie that has Patrick Ewing, Larry King, and Fabio in the same movie. And it's a horror film. This is funny. Here, Thomas finds him, and we even see him as an adult sitting next to a statue of wings. We have images of somebody rising and falling out of a falling on a bed, and then we see that Dyer was murdered in his hospital bed. And Kinderman is seen taking the news rather harshly. So Scott is playing okay. it up; he's playing it big, as you mentioned, Mick. But when he has to, he's getting kind of subtle here, isn't he? Yeah, but also the fact that you know clearly the dream told him this, right? Yeah. But you told him that Dyer's dead, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience of a dream telling that somebody's just died, but I've had that, and it's Uh very unsettling. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, well, technically I've had it twice, um, so it's, yeah, and it it even feels weird discussing it, you know, but I, I sort of, I sort of reasoned that sometimes trauma just decides to ignore the linear flow of time. Without, without, going into de- without going into detail, I mean, how did that make you feel when that actually happened? Like, that's got to be like a real weird, surreal feeling, huh? One of, one of them was uh, just before my father oh. had the stroke that eventually killed him. Right before that, I had this, you know, it's, it's bigger than this because before it, I had, <laughs> I had a strange sort of hypnagogic dream which was like sleep paralysis, but it wasn't dark figures hovering over me, it was glowing ones. So it was very odd, and they were telling me stuff that was very odd. And then in the dream, I had a bunch of images that didn't make any sense until they all sort of came into play on the day of my dad's funeral. And it was all, it was just deeply bizarre. Um, the other one's easier to talk about. Um, somebody, somebody I knew, not terribly well, but... Uh, Somebody had taken their own life, uh-huh. and I knew their family, and I had a dream. I were one of their family members, the one who was kind of uh, I knew best, was berating me in the dream, mm. and she was uh, shouting at me for not having been interested in her life or her family, and saying, "You don't even know how many siblings I have." And I went, "That's no, I know how many siblings you have. You have you have four siblings." And her just, just staring at me and hissing and saying, I have three mm. siblings. And then I woke up that day, and about an hour into the day, I got the call from my mom. 
Wow. And just the most unsettling thing ever. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I kind of relate to Kinderman's dream about the afterlife a little bit. Yeah. Another thing that Blatty does in this, Matt, it's always raining in this movie. <laughs> Which, again, David Fincher uses that for seven. Yes. Like, I also love this movie when it goes first person. Like, because when uh, Kinnaman walks into the hospital, everyone's looking at him because they have no idea how he's going to react. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't explode like you think he will, at least in this in, in this instant. But again, it's sort of that, it's that unsettling thing of, like, you look, you don't see it, but then you see all the jars on the left. You're like, what the hell happened here? Yep. We see canisters full of Dyer's entire blood supply, and not a drop was spilled or a smudge is left on the jars. This is also when the phrase, it's a wonderful life, is revealed to be written in blood on the wall. So this is all stuff that is playing into, Kinderman is really feeling these murders, isn't he, Mick? Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be fair, he shouldn't be investigating them. Yeah, right? He has too much of a personal connection to these things. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a little weird. I, I do wonder about the kind of, uh, the in-world explanations for Kinderman, A, still being a cop, because he seems a little old. And, yeah, him being allowed to investigate this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give it a pass because, you know, the movie has demons in it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Kinderman is asking around, and a nurse says that she found a patient lying unconscious as she went to give him his 6 o'clock medication. Kinderman is, is, that, is then asked by a woman if he is her son as he walks to the patient who was unconscious and we hear the radio is full of dead people talking as she hums to herself. Really good stuff here. Really interesting. I like seeing George C. Scott kind of smile in this particular scene because he's been through a lot of hell in the last 10 minutes or so. It's, it's really weird. This movie could institutionalize people with fear of the elderly. Yeah. But it's just eerie. Like, there's no other way to put it. You're always... Even though, much like, you know, the church in the opening, just because you're in a place where people go for answers and for protection in certain instances, if, like, you're suicidal, for all we know, any of these people could be the killer. He doesn't know these people's conditions, so he, he could be walking, he's walking into a hornet's nest that just, you know, may use a walker here or there. Now, Mick, we've seen horror films take place in hospitals before. How are you feeling? Like, we're, we're basically in a hospital horror film, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a nice setting for a horror movie. You know, mm-hmm. people die in hospitals. It's, uh, yeah, institutional settings work. I mean, it obviously doesn't work if it's a garbage movie set in a hospital, yeah. you know. <laughs> Kinderman's taken to a more secured location where he hears his name and looks at a fishy-looking patient in another room. It's revealed to be the image of Father Karras, who says he was 21 when he died. There's an argument over the chaos Kinderman is causing, but Bill then brings up the Gemini killer's M.O., the M.O. that was in the press, that of the middle finger of the left hand missing, and the sign of the Zodiac being carved on his back. But it was actually the index finger on the right hand, and the sign was on the right hand of the palm. This is exactly what happened to the three new victims. So this is a really nice reveal. I love how Scott plays this scene. Yep, because he also doesn't say, you know, the killer died 20 years ago. and Yeah, yeah. Very we don't know the status of this Gemini killer. Is he like the Zodiac where he was never caught? Or was he caught and killed? Or did they did they kill an imposter? It's still leaving enough questions open to keep you interested. Oh, yes. I, I love the fact that it's a, uh, 
I love the fact that it's revealed during an argument that the hospital administrator just doesn't want all these people crawling over his hospital and, yeah, that things are getting tense and that he just mentions it in this way. And that everyone knows who the Gemini killer is and we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that I like the fact that he doesn't have to go. I like the fact that there's no, oh, it was before your time, but back in 70, there was a guy. You know, they don't do that. Yes. Yeah. Everyone's heard of the Gemini killer. Everybody knows he's dead. No, no cheap flashbacks or, yeah. you know, a hazy cinematography. Yeah. It, it, it's kept in the moment. There's also the way he killed only those with names that start with K. So, again, more stuff being revealed here. We're seeing... Sp- yeah, it's a very Sesame Street M.O. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so what we're saying is that, uh, you know, when he walks into the, the guy in the straight jacket, it's going to be Grover. There you go. We're seeing spring-activated scissors, and Blatty is using some nifty camera work here as these things are being opened and shut. I love this. I love these shots from be- between the scissors going, looking up at the faces as they happen. Kinderman questions the link between the killings as a grandfather clock keeps moving. This is when Bill mentions the link might be the exorcism associated with that quote-unquote McNeil kid. Now, Mick, I'm, I'm assuming this was not in the novel. Um, no, I think it, it is. It, it is. is, I think. In the no- Yeah, I think, okay. yeah. Kinder, Kinderman notices the lights have been off, and a random woman comes to drop off the father's speech. This is when we are hearing Father Morning's name for the first time, and he's revealed to be a friend of Karis and the McNeils. Now, this was a character added for this movie, I understand, right, Mick? Yeah, yeah, and once you know that, it's hard not to notice how morning scenes have kind of been spliced in. yeah. I think my joke when I was watching it is that, you know, he's the, he's the parish priest at our, our Lady of the Immaculate reshoots, you know. <laughs> but, um, no, it's, it's okay. Well, he's played by, you know, the actor playing him, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, the guy from Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nicole Williamson from, um, from John Berman's Excalibur. Oh, wow. There's a link. He's, he's Merlin, and he is a, uh, again, you've already got George C. Scott, but that guy was famously insane. He once stopped doing his Hamlet during a performance and apologized for being terrible and walked off. A, a great volatile lunatic actor, but magnetic in the right role, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you've seen, uh, you know, he's he was Sherlock Holmes in uh, oh, yes. Seven Percent Solution. Yes. But he, much like Richard Burton, he had a lot of uh, substance issues, like he drank a lot. I think he said he smoked 80 cigarettes a day. I think that was his quote. Wow. Yes. We're reminded of the way Reagan was actually speaking English backwards, and the expert who figured out figured that out was actually Kintry's mother. Now, Matt, we have talked a lot, and we have prequel movies coming out where universes get closed. Are you having that feeling here where this universe kind of feels too closed up because this is actually a character associated with that first movie? To an extent, but I give this one a little bit more credence, largely because it's doing the thing that the first movie did in that it's not about the girl, it's about the other characters and how her possession affects other people. This is very much in line with that. So the inter- the interconnectedness doesn't irk me in the way that a lot of prequels and or sequels tend to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's integrated and organic, and it actually connects to the plot. So it, it makes sense. It's you know, it's it's not like in Phantom Menace, 
Well, you know. Oh, look, it's young Guido. Oh, look, it's Jabba. Oh, we're, you know. we're, we're talking about that in a few weeks. That's our next set of films. Yeah. It's like he was in the room with us. Yeah. Uh, but I love how you said prequels, as if you needed to say which one yep. you were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, 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 it's. We cut to a bird that has died, as well as a cross with Jesus on it, which is bleeding. Again, more of this just disturbing imagery that is I love in this movie. And then look at that criminology database. <laughs> That's one thing about these movies that immediately ages it, right, is the technology. Uh, he might as well have gone to the library and pulled out, like, the Dewey Decimal yeah. System notebook. <laughs> Kinderman notices the prints don't match, and he figures that must be a mistake. He once again goes and visits Mrs. Cleely, and I love what Blatty does with this opening shot of her. It's of her hands immediately after the fingerprint diagnosis. So we're trying to make that association. Yeah, yeah. Man, these scenes are so much fun. I, I I I just love every single crazy scene in this movie and every turn it takes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's really, it moves at a great clip. Like, I, I think of so many movies like this that get so caught up in the plotting that they forget to be exciting. Like, uh, did you ever see The Bone Collector? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. that's slow as shit. Yeah, it's bad. It, it's it's like it's the the good version of doing that. Because remember the nineties, like this movie started a trend of like those ridiculous police, like movies like Copycat. Uh, basically, anything Ashley Judd was in. Kinderman asks her about the jars in the room, and she won't reveal who else was in the room with her. We are then hearing about the guy in the isolation tank who was brought in 15 years ago wandering around with amnesia. Six weeks ago, he started coming out of it, and now he's violent. So they've been giving him electroshock therapy, and he says that he's the Gemini killer. Kinderman yells once again, this time about the fact that there is no file on how the man in cell 11 was dressed or how he arrived. Bill is convinced the man in the cell is Father Karras, who was his best friend, and he watched him die 15 years ago. Now... Mick, at what point does this veer off from the novel? I can't remember. I think it's, I think this is pretty much all in the book. This is all in the book. So Father Karras is actually in that book. Yeah. Uh, now I'm doubting everything. How <laughs> do you put it to me this way? I'm like, I'm doubting everything. At, at this point, I could like, you know, maybe, maybe the book's about something else entirely. You know, because um, I'm trying to figure yeah. out. I'm trying to figure out where the studio came in and everything got switched around from what Blatty was originally intending. Uh, no, I think there's, there's a clear demarcation line. Is there? Okay. Yeah, it's patient X, who is Demian Karras' body being inhabited by the Gemini killer. Okay. The original idea was just that simply for all of those scenes, he'd be played by Brad Dourif, and that we wouldn't be seeing Jason Miller at any point in them. Mm-hmm. Which. I don't think would have worked as well. All right, we'll get to Brad Dourif here in a bit. So, Kinderman's in the cell with him, and Karis says that he's not Karis, but the Gemini killer. Now, Jason Miller, speaking of alcoholism, he was also pretty big into alcohol around this time, wasn't he, Mick? I wasn't aware of that, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what I had read. He talks about the killings he committed before roaring in a cell, and he was taught by the master. And when Kinderman says that the Gemini is dead... We cut to Brad Dourif. This was the stuff that I just didn't connect to as a kid, and I'm not sure I'm connecting with it now. It's it's really weird how we're cutting back and forth between these two. I think that's purposeful, and I think this is probably my favorite Brad Dourif performance maybe ever because he's so 
Much like George C. Scott, he's very calm. Except there's that one part where he just loses it. And it's a good thing. <laughs> and you think he could bust out of that straitjacket. Like, even though he's chained up, because he's possessed, for all we know, he could break out of those chains and strangle George C. Scott. And these scenes are the most impactful as far as a writer directing because they're, it's shot like a stage play, you know, the big two-shot, a lot of monologues. But I, I think Brad Durf is legitimately scary in this movie. And you could see why Tim Burton wanted him to be the Joker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is... Uh, and, also, and I, love- I love the head cannon. People thought this was Charles Lee Ray because this was right after Chucky. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, he's got this, he's got Child's Play, and he's got Halloween. Like, he's he's as much of a horror icon as a lot of people. And he's in Graveyard Shift, which we'll talk about later this year. Uh. Oh, well, <laughs> great. No, I, have some, I have some degree of excitement now, knowing that Brad Dourif's in the movie. Mick? Yeah, no, I, I love the design of the set, Patient XL, that you've got those two windows lighting in the beams of light. And in between them, you've got this wonderfully analog old EEG machine. Yes. Which we see more of later. But, um, yeah, no, the film's design works impeccable as well. Uh, Leslie Dilly, who is sort of a very celebrated production designer, whom I'm, I'm thinking maybe he's best into another sort of horror sci-fi credit, is Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. But, uh, um, yeah, all his design work is really interesting and always great. And, again, you talk about this film preempting Silence of the Lambs. It's kind of... Do you know our most dangerous prisoner in this institution? We keep them in something that looks a bit medieval. Just roll with it. <laughs> you know, it's, Great it's that. Yeah. I don't it's know, a, Brett. Yes, our scariest prisoners are our most gothic cells. <laughs> Brad Dourif around this time, I mean, yeah, he was Chucky, which a lot of people have high praise for. But, I mean, he was also in just a terrible, terrible Toby Hooper movie called Spontaneous Combustion that came out around this time, it is just awful about a guy who yeah. can literally put himself on fire. He was in a weird point of his career around this time, and after the debut he had um, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he was just kind of falling into the horror tropes. And I like his performance here, but I don't love it. No, I, I love Brad Dourif's performance in this movie. It is, it's fantastic. And I like the fact that he, he also, I mean, he is, you know, both literally and figuratively restrained at the start of this. But I love the fact that he builds, and we have that line where he catches himself and says, oh, was I raving? You know, and it's like, yeah, you, just a little bit. Um, it's fantastic. And again, he's chewing on all of that great bloody dialogue. Mm-hmm. And he's just been terrifying. I'm finding him much more frightening than, um, then I would find whatever gory mishaps are happening in Saw X or whatever terrible splatter movie is playing this week <laughs> in the multiplexes. He's a, yeah, he's great. He's just so malevolent and charismatic. Yeah, and he had he had a run where he was playing. Like it, it's weird when you when you think about like Rob Zombie cast him as like the only decent person in those movies as the sheriff, uh, because prior to this he was. He was the creepy guy, like he was the the psychic in Dune, David Lynch's Dune that was with the uh, the Harkonnens. Mm-hmm. He was in Blue Velvet, uh, but he but he was in Mississippi Burning right before this. He plays one of like yeah. the only, I guess, somewhat decent people, all things considered. I think he's a he's a great actor, and and I, I it's I get why he's so well known for Chucky, but it's sort of the thing where I'm like. 
you guys know we've done other stuff besides that, right? You know, I mean, we'll talk about Lord of the Rings sometime soon. So, I mean, hell, he he started the decade and he ended the decade with what horror movies had evolved into because he has that uncredited bit in Urban Legend. Oh, jeez. And uh, he's in he's in one of the Alien movies. I don't I don't remember which one. Uh, yeah, he's in. Yeah, he's in. Or he's in Alien Resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah. He's also in one of the the twenty worst movies I've ever seen. In uh, you know how we talk about how like this movie is like the police procedural and how they're all the copycats. So Fatal Attraction made all those those erotic thrillers and the, the Color of Night. Oh my god! Oh I yeah! I thought he was in that. Oh, I hate that movie so much. It, <laughs> that movie's it was fucking garbage. It's terrible. Uh, he's also in Critters Four. So he he's got a lot of fucking franchises he's been. In. Oh, what a what a very career! And he was out in the press saying that the script that they filmed was way different than the one that was originally out. So he really believed that this was much better than what the studio initially that the studio put out. And I think he's giving it his all here, but I'm not as on board on with him as you guys are. So he's telling a story that was never talked about in the press, and I do like that touch where Kinderman's making the connection with this story. Keeping things under control. He blackmails them, like, oh yeah, go to the press, I dare you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do like Brad Dourif, he's singing in this cell, that's that's a nice little touch. What do you guys think of this back and forth? It's not exactly Clarice and Hannibal, but, you know, it's it's right before that that dichotomy. And it's different, isn't it, Mick? Yeah, no, I, I like it a lot. I, I just love these scenes. Um, you know, it's, a, it's interesting actors. Uh you know, bouncing off each other in a way that's unsettling. He did play the, a character similar to this in the first season of The X-Files, where, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you guys have seen it, where he is basically a serial killer in a cell, having a back and forth with Scully, and her, her father had just died, and he was pretty much, he's psychic, and he was telling her, singing a song to her that her dad used to sing to her. And that's how she makes the connection. And, um, you know, he's really, really good in that episode. It's from the first season of The X-Files. I recommend people check that out. He's pretty much the same character here. I don't know. I just kind of feel like he kind of fell into a pigeonhole of horror. And um, I I do think he had more range than what he was given. Well, I think a lot of that's because of this movie. I mean, it's got a very devout, devout, much like Catholicism, cult following. And, and yeah, like, that X-Files episode was, what, first season? First season, yeah. It was like 16th episode. Yeah. Oh, and that was like, all right, we got to do our Silence of the Lambs episode right away. Yeah. Uh, so, and, uh, and then also that year, he, he he did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Like, I think, I'm just waiting for him to be in the Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. reboot so we can cross that off his list. <laughs> no kidding. Although he's still he's yeah. still playing Chucky. He, I mean, the TV show's great. He's also in an episode of Millennium. He's a guest in an episode of Millennium. Uh, so, you know, um, eschatologically themed horror. This nurse must really hate Bill. <laughs> Kinderman is just she. She does reveal that while in his cell, he said that he said, "Save your servant who trusts in you." And this makes a connection. And Bill makes a connection with this. And this is also when we hear the name Legion mentioned, as it is said, when the man who was possessed was asked his name by Jesus. Uh, yeah, Mark chapter five. It, it, it's in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I know, I was reading it earlier. I thought I should check where the quote came from. <laughs> we see a nurse named Amy. She walks into the wrong room, and this shakes her up a bit. When she hears another noise, she walks toward the room again, and as she walks out of it, we get perhaps the best jump scare I have ever seen as something look, that looks like a ghostly nun 
just follows her with his with her arms outstretched. What makes this scare is that Blatty never changes this shot. With the exception of when she initially walks into that other patient's room, he never wavers from this long shot. And it is a scene you have probably heard about a lot over the years. Every year around this time, I see memes that reference it. To me, this lives up to the hype. And for a guy who only directed one film before this, Blatty shows he has some horror goods. And with shots like this, it's a fucking shame he never directed again. Uh, This is one of those movies where you you should never tell people this is coming. Correct. No. This is, but, you know, it, it's great misdirection when she walks in and the guy freaks out on her. He's like, you know, I'm trying to sleep here. She interacts with the, with, she interacts with the security guard. Um, and oh my God, he makes you wait for it. And then that, that sting of yes. walk, going behind her with the giant bone cutters. It's as effective a jump scare as you will ever find. It's got this one little grace note in it that people often miss. But it's like, we've got that misdirect when she goes into the room where Dr. Temp was sleeping and he uh, shouts at her. But that's when we first hear her surname, because we've not heard her surname, surname before. Mm. And we learn then that it's Keating. So we know that she, her name begins with K, and the Gemini Killer targets people whose names begin with K. And we know this as she's wandering back into the hall. So if you've been paying attention, it's a little, it's a little detail right at that point, which makes you fear for her even more. So this is not one of those cheap James Wan type scares where it's just there for scare's sake. This is actually built up and paid off. Yeah, and Garrett, I know you were looking at the Exorcist TV show. Uh-huh, And yeah. in the final episode of its last, uh, the second season, its final season, in fact, they try to redo the scare. Oh, no. And they don't have enough runway. They don't have enough runway or lead-in time to do it. Oh, no. Because you need to take your time to do... If you're going to replicate this, you need to take your time. And it's, it's just embarrassing when they do it. Oh, that's too bad, it's, man. Oh. We're seeing the body being taken out, and Kinderman is told that she was slipped down the middle, and all her vital organs were removed, only to be filled with rosaries and then sewn back up. The palette has changed as we see the result of yet another murder, this one of the man running the hospital. Blatty's really working with the palette here, isn't he, Matt? You know, for a serial killer movie, it's not just people getting stabbed and, you know, that's the end of it. Like, it's really, it's really perverse, but in a, like, non-saw type of way, where I don't feel like this movie's reveling too much in sadomasochism. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, there's that restraint of not seeing it. It's only described. The patient says he left his message with the girl whose name was Keating. We're told that he was put in this body so his work can continue and for revenge of the exorcism that Karis committed all those years ago. He even lets out a Chucky laugh in this scene. So we're seeing all those MOs that, that Brad Dourif had as Chucky come out here too, right, Matt? Let him revel in being evil. Yeah. Because uh, this is, you know, I mean, it's the same, like, you know, Pazuzu wasn't above this in the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like much like the th- there's a playfulness to this demon that is not existent whatsoever in the second one either. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know I don't want to say that the film's not making light of the depth, but I like the note that sort of our, our patient X slash Gemini killer isn't above doing terrible puns. Yeah, <laughs> you know when he says, you know he talks about Katie and says, what is it he says, lovely girl. Mm-hmm. Great heart. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, it's just like, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, he would find it amusing. We don't have to. Yeah. But he's loving this. Yeah. 
Kinderman says he still does not believe that this patient is the Gemini killer. Brad Dourif insists that Kinderman go to the press and say that he's the Gemini killer as Bill hears Karras say, help me. So, again, I'm wondering, where's that fine line where the novel breaks? I think it's the, uh, it's the introduction of all of the Father Morning stuff. Okay, all right, so Father Morning obviously made up for the film. Okay. Yeah, but you know, I think the uh, the reveal of who um, Patient X really is happens really late in the novel. I think we've got like 30 pages to go. Really? Yeah, yeah, structurally it's a little weird. It's kind of like, oh, okay, we've built to this point. Okay. You know? We get a kind of a silly shot of a woman crawling on the ceiling above Kinderman before the door opens to reveal another dead body. I mean, come on, Matt, what'd you feel about this scene of the person on the ceiling? Kind of silly, huh? Yeah, this is one of the things I'm talking about, how modern sensibilities people would laugh. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that it's an elderly person. Shyamalan must love this, too. Yeah. This reminds me so much of some of the stuff he's tried to do with the visit. The nurse, Julie, she insists that Kinderman leave after he disturbs a young child, and he has flashbacks of the serial killer saying he has officially accepted an invitation to the dance. For some reason, we get a car chase as Kinderman arrives home feeling like he's gone crazy. This had to have been inserted. Like this is- No, this was intended to be the climax of the movie, which is oh. why it's as ludicrous as it is. And, you know, and it's very bombastic. They're playing the music. Of course, there's the one time where there's traffic we see in this entire goddamn movie. Um, you know, and it's the old woman with bolt cutters. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And it's the one time where I'm like, okay, this is uh, it doesn't quite work for me. But it's saved by probably one of my favorite reaction shots in a movie when you get to the actual house. You know. This is one of the bits in the film that I will acknowledge Friedkin might have done better. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I think Blatty's approach to directing is just as valid as Friedkin's, but, you know, uh, a car chase is a little... I don't know. I, I do like the fact that during it, that George C. Scott is chewing on his fist. Yeah, that's a nice touch, yeah. Like a stressed-out child. I, li- I like that bit. Um, mm-hmm. So, no, I, um, I, I like this whole sequence. I like the uh, strange, strange incongruity of the, you know catatonical lady in the nurse's outfit sitting in the house. Mm-hmm. Kinderman's family not quite understanding why she's there. I, I love all of that. And the uh, the throwaway line where his mother-in-law says, she, oh, she's staying for dinner? Yep, I, I, yeah, no, I, I love all of this. Also, it's completely nuts. Yeah, it, this is a bizarre scene. So, as, let me detail what Mick's saying. So, when he gets home, the nurse is there asking Bill to please help her. And then we see the shears being pulled out of the bag and the Gemini killer attack before screaming and falling on her back. Just a real bizarre scene. Oh, yeah, because the daughter's face reaction when she gets pulled away from the the cutters doesn't match being horror. It's kind of like if you freeze frame that shot, it's it's comical. Morning shows up inside the cell and starts an exorcism on Karis. Fire is all around as the snake moves on his shoulder. We see close-ups of Karis' eyes as Morning goes to the ceiling, and we see the only scene I really remember from my initial viewing, his head being completely ripped open. Oh, this feels like right out of Hellraiser with all yeah. the people coming up from the floor and someone turned on the fog machine. Uh-huh. I do agree with the complaint that this this is where I feel like the studio said, you, and they did this, you have to have an exorcism, um, which is why this priest kind of... His inclusion is limited to that one scene prior with the bird just to give some semblance of establishing him as a character. 
So I, I do agree it, it feels like an attachment up to a certain point. Yeah, I don't think Blatty was really into this at all, and I, I think, and they're directed that way. Because we're having some pretty shitty distortion effects here, as well as fog coming out of his mouth. And by the way, when he's saying, like, I believe in you, this is very Nightmare 1, and lightning effects hit for an enormous amount of minutes. Mick, this is all obviously added, right? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, um, how can I put it? Okay, if you ever visit Belfast where I live, uh, there's a great big museum, the Ulster Museum, and you can see the original sort of Victorian structure, and then you can see part of the building is the extension they built, and the extension they built in the 70s, and it's it's built into like a brutalist style, so it stops being this gorgeous ornate Victorian building and becomes this large sort of uh, assemblage of concrete blocks. And uh, um, yeah, I think the same degree of subtlety happened here. Where it's, this thing has been added, and you'll notice it's been added. Yeah. It wasn't part of the structure originally. Um, but I, that said, I kind of like this scene, this stuff here I like. Really? Yeah, yeah. I like the fact that they... Um, well, okay, I like little touches because we're seeing a body's version of what an exorcism scene looks like. I like the idea that kind of just the uh, the strange wind from the Gemini killer just blows off his sort of a, his vestments, mm. blows off morning's vestments. Yes, mm-hmm. they're gone. I like the um, yeah, I like the strange imagery he works through here. It's a it's different, right? It, it feels more like an apocalyptic dream than a thing that's actually happening. So I, I like the idea that there's some ambiguity as to how much of this is real. How did that novel end? It didn't end in an exorcism, obviously, right? No, um, it just kind of... It, it, he shoots him. He just shoots him. Yeah, he, yeah, they shot the original ending where he just walks in and shoots him twice. Like, that. that's it. Uh, it's, a, it's a straight shot, and he just kills over. It's the Ash from the Evil Dead approach to dealing with the demonically possessed, you know. <laughs> just walk in and shoot him. <laughs> if you just, yeah, you just murder a, the host. Yeah, he is a cop, so shoot first and ask questions later. Is it really that far out of, uh, no. Out of their no, place? No, no. It just brings to mind, I see, I, this is one of those weird cases where I actually do see it from both sides. I'm seeing the studio, they're wanting to call it Exorcist 3, they want to cash in. I get that. I also get that if you have an exorcist movie without an exorcism, people will walk out saying, well, why the hell was that the exorcist? But I'm also seeing it from Blatty's point of view, where that wasn't his original vision, so he's being insisted upon to add this stuff, and his, I just don't feel his heart is in it at the end of this. I feel like the heart comes in when Kinnaman actually shows up, but not when it's this priest who we don't really have any connection to. Mick, same? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think the problem here is... Uh, Father Morning isn't properly integrated into the film. I think if these objections had been raised before they started shooting, if we had even just one scene we saw Morning interact with other characters in the movie, mm-hmm. it would be entirely different. And you need to think about the original film, where Chris is seeing Father Karras about time. She keeps spotting him before they actually meet. Yeah. But here it's a... Father Morning's off in his own little world, and some of the reshoot material references him. We hear him mentioned about in, in the Archdiocese, and they talk about that, you know, he once performed an exorcism in the Philippines and that stuff, but the not seeing him interact with other characters hurts the movie uh, once they decide that he's, he's an element. 
We're hearing there is only darkness here as Damien fights the spirit out before he yells at Bill to shoot him now, which he does. We then cut to Kinderman over Damien's grave, which clearly reads that he died on the 9th of October, 1975. Yeah, well, the exorcism is also saved by Kinderman's like, speech about accepting that the world is awful. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's, you know, it's that thing the first one's about of, of belief and, like, what you put your faith in. It's all, it's all there. So I think that helped salvage the good compromise on, on Blatty's part for trying to make that scene work. All right, and credits roll on The Exorcist 3. Boys, quite a discussion yeah. here. Kind of went a little all over the place. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give The Exorcist 3? Mick. Okay, well, I'm going to have to quote the Gemini Killer here. When he's talking about how he performed the exsanguination kill. Yeah, because if you remember his exact words, or it's not perfect. There's <laughs> a little blood left over, but the overall effect is astonishing. And in the end, isn't that the whole point? And um, I think mean, his words just sum up my feelings about this film. It is flawed. And some of that is, I think, a few things Blackie was trying. And maybe his, his aspirations exceeded, I guess, what any movie could do. And some of it is the studio. So, I mean, I think... I don't think it's out of the question to compare this to something like Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, or this is a film where you can see that somebody went in and things were forced upon the filmmaker, but there's still so much astonishing filmmaking here and so much compelling storytelling that this thing is still, despite that, still a vital and interesting movie. So I am actually going with a nine, because I find this film just uh, fascinating and frequently very scary. Wow, nine out of ten. That's... A big improvement over last week's one because of how the logo was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, if, yeah. All right, nine from Mick. Matt? So I have to put a big uh, Sharpie through my quote because Mick used the exact same one I was going to quote. <laughs> um, so I will say that, you know, when you think of movies directed by writers – I think sometimes that carries a negative connotation because you think it's going to lack the the visual flourishes or some of the, the technical work that goes into directing. Matt, Matt, we talked about it earlier with, with Maximum Overdrive earlier this year. Yeah, or even like, you know, I think of good writers like Aaron Sorkin. doesn't mean they're the best of directors. Mm-hmm. For, you know, someone of his ilk and with one movie under his belt, this movie is surprisingly... It, it's It's... A very flourished production in a, in a way that I don't think is overly showy. You know, there's definitely some motifs and things of that ilk. But, you know, I always say movies are about what makes you, f- how they make you feel in certain respects. And this movie makes me feel like I'm watching a really strong procedural that just happens to be tied into The Exorcist. It, those flaws are visible. I, I can't deny them. But everything else is so strong, from the performances to the, the dialogue in and of itself, to some of the imagery, and again, that, that thing of what you don't see going against the conventions of not just a horror movie, but procedurals in general. I mean, how many of these do you see, these really detailed crime scene investigations where they analyze every aspect of the body? You know, think of the Saw movies, one of them is a freaking autopsy that is as explicit as, you know, anything you'll find in a mainstream movie. I think it's ahead of its time in a lot of ways, and this is the kind of, like, legacy sequel that I, I think 
shows that this trend that we're suffering through has some merit to it, and it took all it requires is going back 30-plus years to something that actually did it right. I'm I'm with Mick. i got to give this a 9. It's something I watch every time, and I, I don't feel the need to turn it off, or I feel like I'm wasting my time. It just, it overcomes its flaws in the in the best of ways. All right, two nines for The Exorcist 3. I am less enthusiastic about this movie, but I am more enthusiastic as an adult than I was as a teenager. Because as a teenager, this bored the shit out of me. As an adult, I can watch this, and The Exorcist 3 is literally the definition of being ahead of its time. Because five years after this, we had seven. One year after this, we had Silence of the Lambs. Police procedurals became very popular after this movie. But I think the tie-in to The Exorcist hurts it. I think you can definitely see the lines of where the studio came in and where the movie kind of goes off the rails for me. You guys are way high on Brad Dourif's performance. I think he's fine, but I'm not as high on him as you guys are. That being said, there is great stuff here, stuff that I did not gravitate towards as a child, that I, as a teenager that I mentioned throughout the course of this review. I love the banter that Dorsey Scott and Father Dyer have in this. And I, I love the established relationships. And man, Matt's absolutely right. If you have not seen this movie, I would recommend putting it on just for that jump scare. I hope everybody has watched it before this particular review because when it hits, it really hits. And I'm not one to really overhype things, but it is just one of the most well-pulled off jump scares I've ever seen. The movie it does move at a clip, but that through line of where The Exorcist is and where this the original vision is is a little too hard for me to comprehend. That being said, it's a great mood piece. It passes the time, and it's a nice little thriller for those who love both police procedurals and horror films, two things that are very popular now. So I'm going to go with the seven. Not as high as you two, but it by no means is a bad watch. This is a very good film that is getting a much real appreciated in modern years. I just wish it was even more appreciated back in 1990. So, the hit this movie took, yes, it did make money, but not, not a lot of people left really happy with it back in 1990. It would take 14 years for another one to come out, which ended up being another two. The first of which we're going to review next week is a movie directed by Rennie Harlan. After the studio saw that the other one with Paul Schrader directing wasn't up to their speed. Mick, what do you remember about next week's prequel to The Exorcist? I remember I didn't see either iteration. I remember being very excited that Paul Schrader was making a prequel to The Exorcist because Schrader, uh, in the early years of this century, had been doing some really interesting work. I had really, really loved his film Autofocus, which I, I saw twice when it was in the uh, theaters. So the idea of Schrader, a filmmaker who's definitely very interested in faith and religion, Making a religious horror film that that sounded like a uh, that sounded like something that might be interesting, and then they sort of shelled his version and had the same project redirected by Rennie Harlan and I, I didn't bother seeing that, but even when the Schrader version became available a few years later, a friend of mine who's a big horror fan and also a big Schrader fan saw it and just hated it and told me to pass, so I did. So I, I remember being excited, hearing it wasn't great, and never seeing it. So this will be your first viewing? This this will be my first viewing, and I'm, I'm not even sure which order to do them in. Yeah, me and Matt were talking about that yesterday. Do the Harlan one first, because that was the one released by the studio first, and then do the Schrader one. 
Yeah, yeah, so that, that seems like the way to go, but, oh, I, I have no idea. I'll tell you this, the uh, I think it's telling that it's very easy to get Exorcist 3 on Shiny Disc anywhere on the planet. And Exorcist 2, uh, like there's a North American one, but trying to get uh, Schrader's Dominion prequel to The Exorcist and Harlan's Exorcist thing on DVD has just been impossible for me. Mm. And I think it's a reflection of how unloved those movies are. Yeah, no kidding. Matt, this will be the second time the three of us have reviewed Mr. Harlan. We did Nightmare on Street 4 those years ago. What are you feeling going into next week's Exorcist prequel? That's my... That deep sigh is how I feel about going into this because these movies have a reputation much like The Heretic. Not, Not to that degree, but... When I, when I hear someone call Exorcist the Beginning the stupidest movie ever made and Dominion the most boring movie ever made, I, I don't have a lot of hope. I'll be, I'll be clinging to my own cross trying to watch these movies because, look, I either love Paul Schrader's movies or I can't stand them. I don't have any, like, middle ground with him. He's a very polarized filmmaker for me, which I think makes him a great artist, whereas Ronnie Harlan made a lot of crap. We had a couple things I enjoy, and then there's a bunch of shit in the middle I can't make heads or tails about. So, we shall see, but I'm not, I'm not holding out hope. Yeah, next week's going to be Exorcist, the beginning, and then the week after that will be Dominion, and then we'll get to the new one that is in theaters as we speak, but... I'm not going to watch it until we're done with those reviews. Yeah, I'm with you two. I believe I saw the Harlan version. I never did see the Schrader version. So uh, next week will be a rewatch, and the week after will be a first-time watch. I have no idea exactly how different those are. We'll talk about, once again, a studio stepping in. So I, I am at a loss. I have really no idea, other than Stellan Skarsgård is in it, and it is a faster-paced movie than the one that Schrader did. Does that make it better? We'll discuss that in the next couple weeks. Boys, I've really enjoyed going through these movies with you guys. It's been a blast. Again, we have three weeks to go before we will have our review of Exorcist Believe out, and the buzz on that isn't too good. So I I don't know how to feel about that either, but until next week when we do Exorcist The Beginning, I podcast at random, no motive, that's the fun. Thank you, gentlemen. What harm could there be in his being baptized? A great deal. Those people hate and fear Chechia. Do you want to expose him to further danger by having him join a religion they equate with evil? Say it. Say it, Mariner, can't you? The work of Satan. It's the work of man! Why can't you accept that? Because my only concern is the eternal soul of that young man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Join us next week for an entirely new review. And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. The sour is mine! It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
I like plays. The good ones, Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. And if you like this review, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice. For we have individual reviews such as Knock at the Cabin, The Black Phone, Megan, as well as additional blockbuster franchises like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean series, Stephen King's ongoing collection, and many more. He has work to do much more. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? Edited by Garrett. Once the wings have brushed you, you're mine forever. Voiceovers by Adam. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Well, and then you mentioned Friedkin. Now, I don't even think I've even heard of Friedkin working with Chevy Chase. You talk about two explosive personalities. I didn't even know those oh, two yeah. worked together. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, it's this early eighties comedy. Oh I, um, wow. And uh, no, it's 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 a film that was in lots of video stores when I grew up because it was a um, I think uh, Warner's uh, UK and Ireland home video division. Mm-hmm. I think they were one of the first big studios to decide, okay, video's the thing, we're going to issue titles on video, but they were weird about what they put out. You know, they held back lots of good stuff, but they put various things that were total flops out. So, you know, Exorcist 2, and um, <laughs> yes, Friedkin's Deal of the Century were in, you know, they were in my local video store sitting there unloved and unrented. Um, That's fine. Yeah, Deal of the Century, Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver. Wow, I have never heard of this movie. And it is, uh, I've never seen it. It is, by all accounts, spectacularly terrible. Um, the trailer is very unfunny. I've seen the trailer, but it seems to have that kind of, it seems to have that smug early 80s, I, um, 
very Reagan era uh, sort of cynicism uh-huh. to it. Yeah, that sounds like freaking. But without being funny, you know, it's. How do you make a comedy around here? that? That's oof. Yeah, yeah, like Lord of War, but if it was a wacky Chevy Chase movie, <laughs> you know. The power of Christ compels you. After Father Carrots takes a tumble down the steps, and certainly watching that sequence, you know, with its sort of in greeny black and white and with um, its its distressing sort of industrial sounds, it feels like a racer head or the elephant man. It does, yeah. God, Matt, we got to do Lynch eventually. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Hopefully he lives another 20 years so he can... Yeah, so we can finally get so to he, him. I want, if he makes another movie, we'll have the impetus to do it. Mm-hmm. We're hearing about dreams of a rose. And the power of Christ compels you! Now, Mick, we've seen horror films take place in hospitals before. How are you feeling? Like, we're, we're basically in a hospital horror film, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a nice setting for a horror movie. You know, mm-hmm. people die in hospitals. It's a... Uh, yeah, institutional settings work. I mean, it obviously to the work of the garbage movie set in the hospital, yeah. you know. <laughs> What's that Canadian slasher movie, Horror Hospital or something? Uh, no, no, Visiting Hours, is it? Yep. Visiting Hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's garbage. I mean, it's, it's not a real model for this, but... Yeah, it's all with fucking Michael Ironside. Yeah. And I think Shatner's in it. <laughs> Shatner's in it. Do you know what's a great Canadian horror movie set in the hospital? And I say great advisedly, but um, it's uh, it was shot under the title Blue Monkey, but released in the UK as Invasion of the Body Suckers. Oh, jeez. It's like this crazy William Fruit film with Stephen Reels back in it, oh. and it's a monster movie set in a hospital, and it knows exactly the kind of garbage it is, and it is kind of marvelous for it. <laughs> oh, you have to watch it for the monster. It's like a giant cockroach, basically. That's funny. Yeah. And they're oh, screaming God. nurses. It's it's great. It's 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 the kind of horror movie that would be on in the background in a real movie. <laughs> I put it on the yeah. same shelf. I put it on the same shelf as something like like Chopping Mall. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's like I'm. I always show it to people. And be like, you're not going to believe how dumb this is, but in all likelihood, you're going to enjoy it. Chopping Mall. <laughs> I remember that movie. Well, I I remember it too for you know. The big head explosion. Yep. Oh, yeah. The power of Christ compels you! It's still leaving enough questions open to keep you interested. And for the, and for the record, uh, when he yells, shut your mouth, and he's got his, you know, he's ready to kill somebody, that's how I was yesterday listening to Sean Payton post-game. <laughs> Try to backpedal like a little bitch. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you! Because remember the 90s, like, this movie started a trend of, like, those ridiculous police, like, movies like Copycat. Uh, basically, anything Ashley Judd was in. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Are the movies that tried to, like, do the procedural thing with, if not supernatural, then really gruesome stuff. Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman. Those thrillers. Yeah. Yeah, Kiss the Girls, those movies. Oh, God. Kiss the Girl or... Um, Along Came a Spider. Yeah, Along Came a Spider, fucking Double Jeopardy. Double Jeopardy, Jeopardy. yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, because uh, uh, 
Yeah, along came Spider and Kiss the Girls. Like, the books are based on, they have that naming convention that it's all from nursery rhymes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, what I want to see is I want to see somebody write a series of books like that, but that their naming convention, they run out of good names after the first three. Because you know if you did birds, yes? Yes? <laughs> you know, you can have, like, a murder of crows. <laughs> You can have, I think it's Ravens Gathering Conspiracies or whatever. Yes, the, the pool known for Ravens is great. But after the first three or four, you run out. <laughs> and, you know, you're like, a hodgepodge of sparrows. Just the titles become lamer. <laughs> Kinderman asks her about the jars in the room. 